Hi, you found the Bomb Podcast. For streaming video, web exclusive interviews, and more, check out bombsite.com. Today's podcast features an interview with Rick Moody by fellow novelist Darcy Stenke, part of the Bomb Live Writers Series that took place at the New School in New York City in the winter of 2001. We're going to try to be sort of informal tonight. Uh, I have lots of questions. They're grouped around three, three topics. Um, some questions about the new book, and then some questions about postmodernism, and then some questions about God. So I'm going to start with, um, with the questions about the new book, and then Rick has some questions too. That, so we're going to go back and forth a little bit. Um, so your new book is great. I loved it. It was so good. The best of all it opening was, remarks. It was fantastic. It was fantastic. And I, I, I um, in preparation for today, I read um, your last book of stories, and I was really um, thrilled, you know, and surprised that, you know, along with the stylistic virtuosity that you know we all know you for, there was also um, more heart, I thought, and more compassion for the characters and the scenarios and you know whatnot. And that reminded me of. Um, when you were writing Purple America, I remember you told me that you were intentionally trying to load the narrative up with lots of like emotional, sentimental stuff, like the you know the paralyzed mother and the stuttering son. I remember I gave you lessons on how to stutter since I stutter myself, and um, I thought that was such an interesting idea that you would see sort of how much emotion, how much sentimentality, like a narrative could actually hold. Um, and I thought that you you could maybe talk a little bit about um, that about the relationship between sort of emotion and what we would consider sentimental drama and storytelling and narrative and sort of what you, know, what you think you know, the relationship is a little bit. Um, I had this experience with Ring of Brightest Angels, which is the first book of stories I wrote after I published The Ice Storm. I think it was 95. The stories are all really rangy with respect to structure. You know, there's one story that takes the shape of a fake film treatment for an East Village romance, and there's one story that's just a list of books with annotations about how each book was important to me and stuff. So the shapes of all these stories were really divergent. And uh, there was a particular review by our mutual acquaintance, Madison Smart Bell, that essentially <laughs> said, this, this is just way too cerebral. There's no feeling in here. It's all just about the shapes of the stories. Uh -huh. You know, where's the feeling in this? And I yeah. sort of felt that the review was... Um, a misinterpretation of the book because right. for me, of course, since I wrote it, it seemed yeah. like it was suffused with feeling. And right. you know, admittedly, <laughs> like dripping yeah. with incredible yeah, exactly. feeling. Right. Yeah. 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 Admittedly, after the ice storm came out, you know, there were a lot of people who said, you know, why don't those people just talk about their feelings and yeah, stuff? Yeah. You know, so I come out of this background of characters where the repression of sentiment is in a way an evocation of sentiment. Right, in other words, yeah. the feeling is always coming out laterally right. and it's misdirected and it's not obvious. You right. know? So that so as a writer, I, I always felt like I have to work against those impulses, you know. Right. So when I started this novel called Purple America, I just thought, um, you know, uh, 
I'm going to make a book that Madison Smart Bell will never be able to say, <laughs> this book is too cerebral. Right. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the thing I thought to do is, you know, this first scene, this guy's going to bathe his terminally ill mother. Right. You know? yeah. <laughs> it's going to be really potent with feeling. Yeah. And, and, you know, thus purple America, right? So right, it's yeah. purple. It's yeah. almost to the point of opera. That was the idea, to make a novel that was as um, pregnant with feeling as opera is, Right, you know? right. And there's a commonplace, I think, in American letters which suggests that that formal uh, strategizing is on an opposite end of the spectrum right, and from... We're going to talk about this more tonight. Yeah, yeah and this is, you know, it's a problem, opposite right? Opposite end yeah, from, yeah, yeah, yeah. from human feeling, right. you know? Never mind Ulysses or The Good Soldier or, all the, or right. Remembrance of Things Past, for yeah, example. Right. Books that are formally ingenious and also really beautiful and moving at the same time, know. you know. But we've gotten to the situation and now where sort of naturalistic American short fiction equals feeling for right. some reason. Right. I don't know why that's the case. Well, that's the thing I want to talk about. And, and um, it's sort of how I think because of the culture's obsession with feeling, right, like in Oprah, and like we're all talking about our feelings all the time. And, how we want intimacy and all that stuff. That in art, you know, like in literature, there's a feeling that we maybe mistrust the language of emotion, you know. And so, you know, I think that's a thing that that um, has been happening in poetry. But uh, but I mean, it's you, you know, been debased sort of, I think. Um, but I think that's the problem, right? Is that they, f you know, people feel that that maybe we should question the language of emotion. Mm, which know, is bad. I mean, the problem is yeah. not talking about emotions. The problem is talking badly about exactly emotions, right. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a difference between um, you know emotion and sentimentality. Sentimentality. Yeah. You know, my teacher used to always say in undergraduate yeah. school was yeah. unearned emotion. You know, that's the yeah. kind of hackneyed formula. That doesn't mean don't write about emotions. Well, it's also like I mean, our friend Judith, who's who's a stained glass artist. We were talking about sentimentality um, when I uh, interviewed her for Spin Magazine, and she was like, I like sentimentality. I think it's great. Every sentimental thing is a thing that needs to be sort of, you know, recycled into something real and beautiful. So right. we need to work hard to make sentimentality something that actually is sort of genuine, you know. I agree entirely. Yeah. You know? and, and I think I've gotten better at it. I mean, if what you're saying uh -huh. about demonology is true, I figured out the way to get around this wasp reticence and to try and really yeah. probe in there to where the feelings are and locate that spot and let language inhabit that spot. Because the truth right. is, if you say something honest and genuine about sentiment instead of like, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder yeah, or, or something. Yeah, or one tear fell from my eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. Then, then um, you know, if you get to that spot, then language pours out of you. Yeah. the truth. You know, yeah. like a story like, um, there's a story in demonology called Boys, which is just a bunch of reiterations. Which is, which is a masterpiece, this. basically. Thank you. It's the best story in there. Best story I ever wrote. It's the best story. Yeah. In there. Um, it's anyway, it's <laughs> every, everyone should read it. It's the best One story. sentence, Boys entered the house, and it just yeah. gets repeated and repeated and repeated yeah. and added on and, and so forth until you've pried that language loose from its obvious meaning exactly, and yeah. start to burden it with all kinds of... Yeah, um, it's like it stopped making sense. I mean, it's like you've, you've taken the language out of it and put it back into right. it. Right, and what comes yeah. out, the explosion that, that yeah. results is an explosion of feeling. I know. know. Actually, that story made me wonder if, if that wasn't how the Bible was written, actually. If maybe these sort of things that people say every day were used... I mean, you know what I mean? We're sort of used and overused and begotten and thus, and maybe that's really what the 
the people who wrote the Bible were trying to do, maybe. Well, it's certainly true, like in Ecclesiastes, I know. with all that repetitive language yeah. and stuff. Um, the the story, the title story, demonology. You know, I know is you know about the re, you know about real events about your sister, about your sister's death. And um, I wondered if you ever feel like you're as fiction writers. When I write memoir pieces, I sometimes feel like I'm. I feel a little uneasy, like I may be taking advantage of the reader a little bit, like because there's not enough distance between. I don't know. I just feel like my own. I mean, my own emotions. I'm sometimes less interested in sort of laying out than, than things I've sort of, you know, worked out in sort of a fictional way. So, you know, you know, I wondered if you ever felt that way. And also what you uh, feel like the relationship should be uh, between the artist and their, and their life, you know, like the writer and their actual life experience. I know I read a quote not too long ago uh, by Duchamp who said that he felt like the man who suffers should be as far away as possible from the artist. Hmm. Um, and, of course, Duchamp would say that, right, because he was such a cold like bastard but, <laughs> but, but but still a good artist but but you know but um but I just wondered what you you know what you would sort of well first if you I, ever feel that way I, you know. just for the record in my own sanity I have to correct a factual error that's been kicking around uh, because of the New York Times uh-huh. my sister did not get in a car crash and have a seizure yeah in fact in the story there's this whole passage about how I always expected she would get in a car crash, uh-huh. and she never did. Yeah, yeah. And somehow the Times guy re- read it incorrectly, and yeah. since then everybody thinks my sister was in a car crash, which yeah. she wasn't. No, it just happened randomly, yeah, right? Yeah, she that, just that's what I thought. keeled over. Yeah, right, when she so was reading. So it's yeah. all about disjunction. But the, to answer your question, um, it would be great if we could all sit down and sort of really think through these stories, right, and sort of be premeditated about it and, um, you know, arrive at... Uh, the most um, elegant solution to creative problems. I'm not like that at all. You know, totally writing at some level for me is automatic, uh, unchosen. Uh It's just completely a calling, Uh you know. And so when certain material has to get written, uh, it's tough shit if I don't want to write about that or it's the wrong thing for me to be doing. I have to write about it anyhow. You're trying to figure it out too for yourself. Right. So when I got to the time in my life uh, when these events were taking place, that was how I ordered the horror and tragedy of that yeah, time, right, was right. to write stuff down. Right, it would yeah. be great if I didn't write it or I never published it or whatever. Um, then I wouldn't have to have these mixed feelings about you know, this material being out there in the world. But the yeah. fact is, I'm a writer. I don't know what else to do with life. That's yeah. all I know yeah. to do. Yeah. You know? So the material came out first. Um, it's sort of that... that uh, Marxist remark about uh, history first is tragedy and yeah. later is farce or whatever. Yeah. So the first time yeah. through, uh, when I was writing after these events took place, that story demonology is what came out. Mm-hmm. Then I sort of figured, okay, I did this. I've written through this experience. It's time for me to move on. Mm-hmm. But I found, no matter what I did, this grief theme kept coming back into yeah. it. So the story Mansion on the Hill, yeah, which that story. opens the book. Yeah. Um, you know, reconfigures all these same events because I couldn't yeah. stop. I just yeah. could not stop. So, you know, people say, what's the right time to write about this? What, are you too close to the events? All that stuff. And I, my response is, I didn't choose. You know? yeah, the right, material right. is dictated to me to yeah. some extent, yeah. and, and I just got to go with it. You right. know? I, mean, ro- I mean, why write about, you know, the Eskimos? <laughs> you know what I mean? If you have, you know, the things that you actually want to write about. Right.
Well, I, I actually had the idea to ask you the same question because I'm really interested in how um, you know you've used events from your own life, but they're much more subliminal in the text. Yeah. Like Darcy, for those who don't know, is a minister's daughter, and in Jesus Saves, that experience of being close to the church, adjacent to the church, yeah. as a child, sort of suffuses the whole book. But it's done in a yeah, and I, I dare say much more elegant way. Well, I don't know I mean, <laughs> than I do it. Well, I feel like the experience of being—I mean, all—I I don't think I've ever had a character that hasn't been a minister's daughter. I mean, they, I mean, they have variations. I mean, I find the experience of being a minister's daughter just fascinating to myself, and I just hope it's fascinating to everybody else. You know, so I can't—I just can't get over it. I keep thinking every time I'm going to get over it that time, but I never do, because I just think that the idea of—because you're raised in a way that's somewhat more um, it's like an ancient way or something you know with different texts and the, you know the things that it, you're, you're concerned with and stuff and it's strange to be that person and then like like go to the strip mall and get your you know so I mean that sort of juxtaposition is, is really fascinating to me and it's hard for me to get over it it's hard for me not for that for those conflicts not to like always be at the center of my work I mean I don't know what I'm going to do if I'm ever going to get over it or not but do you find that you first select different material and the autobiographical element creeps in? Yeah, I do. I do. I think I'm going to, yeah, that's what always happens. Because when it comes down to sort of um, working out the conflicts and the, the sort of philosophical grid of the main character, I just, I just, right. yeah, it's the most interesting. It's like, it's not even the most interesting, but it's the most, like, exciting. You know what I mean? Like, it's thrilling for me to write about that. Where it's like, I mean, there's lots of charged particles on it and I can't wait to do it. Where if I decide to make her a doctor's daughter, I'm like, yeah, you know, like I'm just not interested, you yeah. know, <laughs> like in trying to figure that out, you know, so. How about with nonfiction? Because Darcy wrote a really great piece about Monica Lewinsky during the Monica gay period. And part of the reason it was a really great piece is that Darcy Steinke was an intern in the White House. Yeah, I sat, I sat at Monica Lewinsky's desk, actually. So, like the same desk. But did you know when you started the piece yeah. that that was going to be the way in, or did you encounter Yeah, no, no, I wouldn't have taken it if I couldn't have. Well, too, I was interested. I felt like she was not getting... I think she's sort of... Her image has been recycled now, but at that point, there weren't a lot of people giving her much compassion. So I decided I was going to try to make her like you know, Madame Bovary, someone like <laughs> in love with like bad, you know, like... You know, this, you know, sort of bad romance novels, you know. And so I was interested in trying to see if I could do that. And and uh, I had, you know, I had tremendous compassion for her, you know, when I was writing the piece. And I got really interested to just the, the sort of the way a woman come, comes into the world and her sexuality. It's interesting, you know. I'm going to offer a rash hypothesis. <laughs> My rash hypothesis it's is what? that all art is autobiographical. Even add yeah. Reinhardt paintings, even yeah. Duchamp's urinal, you know, yeah. it's all autobiographical. But why are people so against that, though? I don't know. I don't That's know. what I can't figure out. I mean, why not make art to express yourself? What else, What? It's no fun if you don't do that. Well, that's what I'm sort of saying. Yeah, it, it, you know, exactly. I don't know. All right, let's see. Um... <laughs> There's nothing more to say about it. Well, the next, I know. Well, the next question has to do with this, though, because I know when we were, the, when we, well, when The Kiss came out, that the, the, the Catherine Harrison book, we were both sort of mortified. <laughs> and, um, and there was a lot of, the, you know, the memoir was at this sort of high point then. And I remember you saying to me, your new book, which is, is not, you know, it's going to come out in a year, right? Um, you were going to make it an anti-memoir. Like, you were just, 
the whole memoir form. You were just, a, and I was wondering if you felt like I sort of do that. The rise of the you know the memoir um, is a direct response to sort of postmodernism's war against subjectivity, and you know sort of a way to sort of assert yourself within this idea that everything's fake and you know, and just your experiences in writing about your family and things like that. And, well, there is this way that, that, that the artifice of fiction can get really tiresome. Like, I remember yeah. one time um, Bradford Morrow said to me that he felt that there was a stench of fiction. <laughs> and he would open up a book and he would go, I smell the stench of fiction. <laughs> and you want to put it away. Now, and I understand what, he, what I think he's saying is that, is that we know the codes too well. I know. And we yeah. sort of know what's going to happen. Like, yeah. you pick up the well-made New Yorker story. Yeah. And you already know, you know. know too well how to interpret yeah, it. Totally, yeah, totally. And, and I think that the memoir boom, to a certain extent, occurs as a resistance to those codes. You know, yeah. To try and find a way around them. You yeah. Know? It's interesting, like, yeah. There was a, I realized at a certain point in my work that there was a tendency that, that sort of erupted again and, and again and again, and that was for narrators to lurch out of the, the story near its close and say, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah, this story that, is yeah. fake. I don't yeah. want this. You know, yeah. Both in The Ice Storm and in the novella Ring of Brightest Angels, yeah. there's that eruption. And I think it was my own feeling of some kind of exhaustion with respect to these codes of fiction. I just got yeah. tired of it somehow. You yeah. know? But even when you don't do that, like in Twister, you sort of do that. You, I mean, you move from the story to this other point that sort of, you know, angles you as the narrator differently at the story. You refuse to sort of stay in it. Um, you know, the stench is so horrible sometimes that, I, that even I think about my own work and I just go, oh, God. So I'm sitting here and I'm talking about my stories and all I can think is that the stench of fiction is, is in the room. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. I know exactly what you mean. It's, it's depressing. Um, I was Have, can I ask yeah, you a question? Yeah, 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 Have you yeah. ever thought of writing straight memoir? Well, I have, you know. I mean, I really, I really enjoy writing my memoir pieces. I have to say, I like it a lot, you know. But, um, I mean, it'd be fun to write one about being a minister's daughter. <laughs> Maybe that would cure me. Um, but I don't know. I don't, I don't, in another way, I, um, I do like to make stuff up, I have to say, you know. I mean, not that I couldn't do that in a memoir, too, but I feel freer to do that in fiction. You know what I mean? I have to say. I mean, don't you like to make stuff up or no? Yeah. I do. I think I like to exaggerate a Me little too, bit. Me too, yeah. Yeah. It's uh, that kind I, of window dressing. And I like to riff, yeah. which I don't think I, I would feel like I could do as easily in, in memoir either. But... Um, but I have a question about suburbia now. Do you want to answer that one? Okay. Okay. Um, in reading Demology, I was seeing how you were returning again to you know suburban themes, and and I mean there was a while where people were sort of bad mouthing suburban novels. Everybody was sort of sick of them, and that and that subject matter seemed to be over. But there seems to be a, a endless interest in in you know in suburbia, and um, even I I was complaining. Um, the writer Barry Hanna is a friend of mine, and I was complaining to him about, you know, the way I grew up and the subdivisions and the strip malls and everything. And he said to me, um, he said, yeah, but y'all keep coming up with good stuff from it. <laughs> and I thought, like, he's right. He's really right. Like, it's, a tr it's been a tremendous subject matter for us, really. Like, even though, we you know, everyone complains about it and it's bad and all that, it's been really rich in a way. 
and, and diverse and like, I mean, so I mean, incredible amounts of good art have come from it. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, um, you know, your relation to it and how you feel like in the, in the sort of cultural imagination suburbia has changed as far as your, if you're angled at it in a different way or anything, you know, in um, a new book or, you know. You know, my first book was sort of tried to resist being suburban. Uh-huh. I wrote this novel called Garden State and it sort of reflects my my life in Hoboken. I lived in Hoboken for seven years and I sort of messed with the town a little bit so it would not resemble Hoboken. Uh-huh. It was really basically about that and it was an attempt to try and steer clear of that material. Yeah. Because even in graduate school people had said to me, oh you're, you're good at writing about the suburbs and I was sort of embarrassed. Yeah, that, I know. You know? Yeah. Um, so I wrote this book that was sort of more working class and had a more slightly more urban um, landscape. Uh-huh. And then I published it and I showed it to this friend of mine who worked at The Voice and she said to me, you don't know anything about this, yeah. so you shouldn't write about it. You yeah. know? And I was so sort of wounded and hurt that I kind of thought, well, what can I do? What can I write about that I really absolutely know about? You yeah. know? And the truth is, you know, it's great to sort of pretend that I didn't grow up in the suburbs, yeah. but I did. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. and, it, and it seems it yeah. seems um, counterproductive to to um, to sort of uh, create artifice about what you really know. Yeah, you know yeah. Why not use the material that's really close at hand? So I decided, okay, I'm just going to take this suburban landscape and I'm going to look for what else is implicit in it. Since uh-huh. you know, like 80% of the United States of America lives in a suburban setting or near a suburban setting everybody knows about it. So it must really reflect some social things that are going on, some sort of sociological things, some historical things, some philosophical things. Why not take the setting and just sort of overlay all these other things onto it and see what comes out of it, you know? So people think I'm crazy when I say I started writing the the, the ice storm after reading about Nixon policy in Cambodia. Uh But it's really true. I was thinking about Nixon and, and how, from my point of view, the Nixon presidency was about hypocrisy and the kind of normativizing of hypocrisy, mm. the kind of beginning of accepting it in all its manifestations. Yeah. And my idea was that that sort of trickled down into the suburbs when the sexual revolution. Interesting. Got, I love that idea. Yeah, when the sexual yeah. revolution got to New Canaan, Connecticut, yeah. that was the Nixon presidency manifest in the daily life. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. So right. that was the idea. Yeah, you know? yeah, so yeah. people say, "Oh, you wrote a suburban book," but I thought I was writing a philosophical book yeah. about Nixon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the Nixon mask, right? Yeah, that's why. Which is such a Nixon scary. Mask. It was just so yeah. terrifying in there. Yeah. Um, I, I also think that the suburbia that we, we see represented in films and art and, and books now is somewhat more 3D. It's not just completely, it's not, you know, negative and boring and, and you know, you know, soulless. It has a little more dimension than it once had, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, know? plus it's much more diverse. Now the suburbs, you know, Montclair has every kind of American in it. Yeah. It's not just a bunch of... Um, you know, uh, wasps in there. Right, and yeah. even it's not considered. I mean, I think The Sopranos is a good example. Of it. It's not even. It's exactly. not safe anymore either. You have like, right. you know, now there's. It's not just the mafia hanging around in Little Italy. They're right. also like, you know, out there in the suburbs. You know, like. Right. Which I think people sort of like the idea that like the suburbs are dangerous. <laughs> you know, one thing I'll no. say though is that I think there's not enough uh, literature written about. Um, the kind of strip mall experience now. There's a way, yeah. after minimalism, there's a way that we shy away from yeah. the way we really live. Like all yeah. of us, 
you know, went to Target in yeah. the last year. Maybe some of you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and and drove Walmart, down past yeah. Walmart and all yeah, that stuff. Yeah, I love Walmart actually. I think. Sorry, but I do. <laughs> I think we need to like get that stuff into the literature. We're in yeah. a bad spot, yeah. and the literature is not reflecting the way that people really live. You know. I know. It's true. Um, another thing I noticed in demonology is that well, this is this is sort of a, a part of. Uh, purple America too, but your idea of the sort of undistinguished American, and you go to great lengths to sort of say like this isn't this guy is a regular guy, a regular guy, you know. And I thought that that a lot of your work sort of centers on this insistence on sort of ordinariness. Um, and I was also thinking that part of the power of your work, I think, um, and it's it's cultural resonance, is that you've sort of been able to to um, sort of reinvigorate the sort of middle class white guy, like you've made him compassionate again, and and uh, and sympathetic. I mean, do you think that's true? Or I um, hope so. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it, it's yeah. to say the same thing that I was saying before about yeah. about getting Walmart into the literature. You uh -huh. know, the the whole idea of um, not Walmart actually. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. The whole idea that 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 um, <laughs> that uh, that the characters in the work have to be sympathetic. For example, there's mm -hmm. a kind of hackneyed idea that really adheres to contemporary fiction. If you read sort of New York Times reviews of yeah. contemporary fiction, you'll find reviewers saying, oh, you know, this character is unsympathetic yeah. or whatever. You know, a lot of the people walking past this building right yeah. now are unsympathetic. Yeah, and, yeah. and I feel, or at first uh, glance, yeah. they yeah. appear to be. You of know? course, yeah, yeah. And so I, f I felt like I always wanted, to, I've been attracted to, to trying to get at the psychology of regular people yeah. and and invite it in. And instead of saying, oh, this guy's a loser, yeah. you know, Hex Rayliff in Purple America is a loser because he's a, a um, publicist, uh -huh. you know, the worst possible profession for yeah. a character in a novel, you know. Yeah. I wanted him to have a hideous profession yeah. and to be, you know, sort of a... He's so sympathetic, though. Yeah, but yeah. that's... A, yeah, yeah. whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you tell the truth about human psychology, they end up being sympathetic. I agree with that, yeah. You know? Yeah, I know. But through a backwards route, you know. Yeah. There are some reviewers who want the characters to be virtuous, and I find that appalling, really. Yeah, well, I've actually had a lot of people say that to me, like, why don't people write books anymore about characters you can admire who are, you know, building their own homes and then building <laughs> schools for disabled people? And like, oh. But, like, you could never do that. I mean, I don't know if, if they've read any books, or I'm not sure what books they're even talking about. Right. I mean, it's hard to write, write a book, but I actually I get that a lot, too. I admire the truth. You know, that's yeah. the thing that I admire. Yeah. You know, life is actually lived. Right, I know. Um, okay, now we're going to move into the postmodernism questions. Thank okay. God. Okay. <laughs> um, you have a story in the new collection called The Inelectable Modality of the Vaginal, right? Which sort of pokes fun a little bit of postmodernism. Do you think that's true? Everybody says fun? it pokes fun, but, you don't think? But, but I think that it couldn't have been written but from the inside of the literary critical apparatus. Yeah, oh, oh yeah, totally. Yeah. But, but it's, you know, clearly there's, it's, I mean, I liked it for that reason. But, um, and you yourself once, I heard you refer, when we did that thing at St. Luke's, you referred, we were with, the, the minister there, Richard Furlow, used to be a professor, and you were saying that you used to be a postmodern son of a bitch. In <laughs> 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 um, like a earlier manifestation, but you sort of have, you know, had moved away from that and stuff. And, um, I've been thinking a lot about postmodernism. How it, I mean, right now I feel like it's sort of this 
this sort of bookkeeping mechanism. I mean, we've been through a, a big period of, of lots of transformation and change. It's a way to sort of run through all the ideas. But I'm really hoping that now we can um, accept and internalize the obvious you know, idea that all ideas have you know, have presidents. You know what I mean? It's, 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 it's not a new idea. But, you know, I want to ask you what you thought, um, you know, if, if postmodernism has informed your work in the past or now or where you think it sort of fits in to contemporary letters at the moment. The truth is that I really don't know what it is. You yeah. know, there was a point where I thought I did know what it was and there were a lot of commonplaces. Oh, this is work that's reflexive or this is work that thinks that the, that the rules of literature have become depleted somehow. Well, that's, I think, you know. th that's the thing that most people point to, right, is that your regular literature, maybe it's the sense of fiction, you're tied to this idea of a linear narrative and postmodernism freed everyone from this from this idea of linear narrative, which seems sort of simplistic, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I find that when people want to pin me down, I'm, I'm feel closer to the late modernist tradition that everything yeah. is permitted. You know, yeah. in fact, someone asked me recently, what what uh, tradition do you think what traditions do you think inform your work? And I said, uh, um, the the uh, modernist idea that everything is permitted, the postmodernist idea that everything is exhausted, and the post postmodernist <laughs> idea that because everything is exhausted, everything is permitted. Wow, <laughs> that is a serious, like, smarty pants answer. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, but you know, I heard William Gass say once that postmodernism was an architectural term and ill applied to fiction, and I really mm. think that's true. I like that. But we were also talking, I remember you. You emailed me not too long ago, and you said that I asked you about postmodernism. And you said, "Well, I think everyone believes in the genuine." So the idea of the sort of the false construct—I mean, you can say whatever you want about it—but everybody, everybody in their heart somehow, or in their soul, or in their mind, or whatever, sort of believes in the genuine. I and totally think that's true. Yeah. yeah. And I know somewhere further in Darcy's list of questions, yeah. she's <laughs> going to ask me if I believe in moral absolutes. I am, yeah. And I'll just say that I believe... No, but don't say it yet, though. No, I believe okay, that right. the genuine <laughs> exists. I don't yeah. think that it's a, that it's a yeah. you know, um, merely a signifier and that everyone in this room has a different idea of what the genuine is. I don't think that's true. I adhere to the platonic yeah. idea that, that, that we all really know the genuine and uh, that we're capable of experiencing it, and then right. often the same things will make all of us experience it. I think you know? that's true. I mean, in some ways, it's an, it's an idea. You know, I have a five-year-old daughter, and she is just getting into this. You know, is your red the same as my red? You know, the colors that you see, and it's sort of it's an idea that you pass through in a way that like there's you know diversity, and then you you, you hope to move to a place where where there is sort of like communal ideas of what's right and wrong, and you know. What do you think about postmodernism? Well, you know, this is a bad time to ask me, but I. <laughs> <laughs> There's never I a good time. No, to I, ask know, about I know, I know, I know, I <laughs> know. I um, I don't know. See, I feel I've always felt confused. I've, I have to say, I've always felt like, like postmodernism was a boy thing. I have to say, <laughs> and I haven't felt. I never felt all that close to it because I felt like it was a boy thing. But but um, I also feel like confused by it because I feel like a book is a book like everyone knows this like no one believes this is really this is really like you really did all these things and this happened I mean you know what I mean like a book is a book no matter what like whether it's like whether you're having a have a linear narrative in a book or whether you 
or messing around with time or having parts. Like, you know, it's made up by someone. You know what I mean? It's like, and so I've never really exactly gotten it. The, the, um, you know what I mean? The, the sort of amazingness of it. I've, it. I've been confused by it. Like, it seems sort of a little bit obvious. I don't know. But. I don't know. I mean, I know only that, that, that some kind of messing around with form is fun. Yeah, and yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah, like I well, only did it because I thought it was yeah. fun. I didn't well, think well, like, oh, this is too, so small. But I think too, the like best writing does come out. I've always thought this: that the best writing, if you build, you have to build like sort of your own and a whole new sort of like boat to carry the kind of writing that you want to do, right? And that's when people write the best if they're not forced into sort of you know, something that they feel has come before they have to do. So that's where, I mean, if that's postmodernism, that's fantastic. I mean, I think that that's the best kind of writing is when you've built a new vehicle for yourself to get into and drive, right? right. right? Like or you figure good. out yeah. the theme of your book and you, and you come to understand that this theme, if it's going to be best expressed, yeah. has to have some unique form to go along with it. Right, exactly. You know, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That seems to me to be a, a modernist notion. You know, yeah. that, okay, you can do whatever you want with yeah. your art, you know? Yeah. Like there's a story in here in, in demonology called uh, Surplus Value Books Catalog Number 13. And it's a story about a guy who's a book collector. And I realized that the only way I could express his character, not the story, the story is a matter of indifference, mm. the best way to express his character was to do it in the form of a book catalog. Mm. So this guy ostensibly, I made up all the books, they're fake books. This guy ostensibly sets out to tell you about all the books in his catalog and how much they're worth. And along the way, he starts to reveal more and more of himself right, until yeah, by the end yeah. you really know the guy. Yeah. You don't care about the books or how much they're worth or that the story's in this shape. Uh-huh. You're interested in knowing about the person. Right, you know? right, yeah, yeah. So yeah. the formal stuff, even though it's really fun, yeah. has to be, for me, an evocation of theme. Right, you know? right. Yeah, so yeah. even like recently, I read a hypertext novel of this tremendous writer called Shelley Jackson. She oh. wrote like one of the classic early hypertext novels. Already, hypertext is classic. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, well, actually, what is hypertext? I'm sorry to add. Is that It's like on a, a disc, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the novel comes on a CD-ROM, and you put it in your computer, and you know you get to a certain point in the book, and it says, do you want the character to set her hair on fire or right. have yeah, yeah. to die out? Yeah, yeah. And if you check set hair on fire, then yeah. you go through this whole thing, you know, yeah. the burning scalp. Uh-huh. And if she says, meet the guy, you go down, you know, so yeah. that it forks a zillion ways, uh-huh. you know. I found it really fascinating for about two hours, yeah. you know, and then I wasn't going to, like, take it to bed. I was going to take yeah. my laptop to bed and keep reading it yeah. because it seemed to me that it was mapping the possibility instead of wanting to express psychology and emotions. Yeah, you know. right, exactly, yeah. It's interesting. Um, what about, I mean, um, you know, the sort of postmodern ideas of the fake and the real, do you think that this these things have any anything to do with constructing stories or well the presumption of postmodernism is that the real is a construct I know so. you know in that uh, it's a construct like any other construct and and hence artificial uh-huh. so so to privilege the fake over the real in a postmodernist text is to be honest right know? right that's not an argument that I ever found useful because yeah. I don't think anyone really lives as though the real is entirely fake no right one's yeah. going down the street and it would be schizophrenic to yeah, live that way. Yeah, you know? yeah. And so to try and write a novel that really completely reflects that idea would take you to a really um, disjunctive place. Right, you know? yeah. Maybe some of those Ricky Ducournay novels that I really yeah. like but I don't entirely understand yeah. fit into that category. Well, that's almost, though, like... Um, 
hyperlyricism or something. You know, she goes to this, like, it's just, you know, the, the, I don't know if anybody knows this writer, but it's like the Pope's dying and the white elephant comes in and there's like a beautiful African African-American boy with incense and then a woman comes in to breastfeed the Pope. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, you, know, you, you have no idea what's going on, but it's fantastic, you know. It's like Phosphor in dreamland. That's the really way out there when it's worth yeah. looking at. Yeah. yeah, she's a great writer. Um, okay, now we've come to God. Okay. Okay, <laughs> okay. Uh, I don't know if everyone knows this, but today is the anniversary of the Oklahoma bombing um, and the Mount Carmel tragedy in Waco, which is, of course, sad. Uh, and we talked about praying you know, over it, but we decided that we weren't going to pray in public. Yeah. We can, we're going to pray at home tonight on our own. Um, but I was thinking about how, how, how crucial a point of view and story were in these events. That's what I was thinking about today. Um, to the conflicts and the horror of them as well. I mean, um, and I was thinking about, actually, actually Marikami talks about this in a recent um, interview in, in book form. I'm not sure if you've read that yet. But he talks about how cult members take on a, a, a sort of a cheap or, or like sort of instant or quick story and how in order to believe the story of the cult, they have to leave their reality and go into a new reality. So they can't believe the story that they want to believe, like unless they're in a new reality, which I think is a really interesting idea. Um, and it made me think how stories do sort of transform, how, how transformative stories really are. I mean, and of course, you know, being a minister's daughter, my example of the, of the um, you know, I can't help thinking about the New Testament. If you take, you know, if you believe the story in the New Testament, clearly there's going to be some repattering and transformation. Um, and in some ways, therapy works in a similar way. If you, I mean, sort of therapists work to sort of redefine personal narratives, right, in ways that are more sort of helpful and palpable and things like that. Um, but I thought, and you know, and then I thought about um, novels and and how novelists sort of tell stories that reverberate against sort of cult, you know, the culture of the time and cultural ideas. And I thought you could talk a little bit maybe about the relationship between, you know, the writer and the culture at large or the writer and the community and, and how you think that, you know, those two things sort of function. Why don't you tell your story about being in Waco first because it's more interesting. <laughs> Darcy Which is actually part? there and <laughs> you know. wrote a really fabulous yeah. magazine article about it. But what did about you find it? yourself... Which one? Well, Which story you, about it? Your magazine piece. I know, but which story about being in Waco, though? Well, they don't know that you were there at uh, all. Well, I was in Waco for three weeks during the, the siege. And, um, I mean, for me, it was just the hotel room and then waiting with all the other... Well, I guess I did interview lots of people and stuff, but there it, it was a lot of waiting around, uh, waiting for, for... We always thought they were going to come out, right? Which they never did, but we always were waiting for them to come out, you know? But how, do you, how did you feel about the narrative of the Branch Davidians, the sort of well, constituted I was narrative? interested. I mean, the, the thing that interested me the most was, I think the guy's name was David Troy, right? The guy who was, a, was the press guy for the, not the FBI, but the, who are they again? The, the ones who bust, who actually did uh, the... Tobacco, yeah, alcohol, and yeah. yeah. Because he was, so, um, he was so arrogant. Like, and they, they didn't take his, they didn't take Koresh's, religious ideas at all in, in any way seriously and and he would also the really inter interesting thing is he would they knew Koresh had a had a radio in in there so at the press con and, the, and the press conferences were were often um, 
recorded live and so they were speaking directly to him you know and it was all really weird macho really Texas weird macho stuff going back and forth and you know um, but I mean I think it was it was just a complete breakdown into into ideologies you know like there was this you David Koresh who you know, I mean, the Branch of came off of Seventh-day Adventism, and then they had, like, you know, their own sect, and they had some nutty ideas, but all religions have some nutty ideas, you know? And it's unclear what Koresh, you know, actually did. Clearly, he had lots of guns in there. Um, and then there was the state, you know, who, who also were completely convinced of their rightness. You know, their point of view was completely you know, solidified. Um, but there were funny moments too, like when people kept breaking into the. I thought that was incredible. They kept breaking into the compound. Two different people broke into the compound, like not came like out. Like reporters. No, like just people who were crazy. Cause, I mean, because people, well, not necessarily crazy, but like very like passionate. <laughs> Extremely passionate people. But um, twice during the time I was there like people you know two guys got in because they they thought maybe Koresh was God and they wanted to get in there and see and um and that always made for funny press conferences because then the press guy would have to come and say that you know because it was sort of their fault because they had this big periphery and then people were getting in there you know um and those people eventually would come out I mean they, they didn't usually stay um but, uh, Do you wonder about the conversation inside? I know. Hi. Well, well, there's actually in the movie. I know. Actually, in the movies, there's been several movies about you know, Waco, and they they actually had some some videos that um, Koreshina's followers made and sent out as sort of a peace offering, and you know they're very sad, and but they're they they come off as tremendously simple, sincere people. And the the FBI had those, and they didn't let them out because of that fact, you know. Mm. So, um, you know, I think it's pretty much a horror. I mean, you know, the other thing that happened there. I mean, I don't think there's anything good about it, you know. I think we're completely to blame. We're all complicit, you know. Right. It's bad news. You know? So it's really then it's about the power of storytelling to constitute civilizations. You know? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the branch Davidians yeah. are a little mobile cultural unit exactly, that yeah. told certain stories came to believe the the truth value of these stories yeah. and a civilization sprang up in the wake of the belief in those stories exactly the ATF had their own had their own story yeah yeah you know. yeah exactly so it's part of how n narrativizing the making up of stories you know is so powerful and we forget every day especially when writing in this culture is is you know less has less cultural throw weight than movies or yeah. TV or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. We forget how a sentence or a sequence of sentences carries this awesome responsibility. It's incredible, yeah. yeah. I mean, when you think about Waco, it's incredible. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, I was at a dinner party recently, and this guy was there's this sort of rabid atheist guy going mm -hmm. off for a while, and, and uh, he said, "What's the difference between a cult and a religion?" And I said, "A thousand years." Yeah, exactly. And yeah. he said, "No, money. Money's the difference." <laughs> but I really resist that idea. I mean, yeah. I really think that what, you know, what, what the potential in a branch Davidian narrative uh -huh. is that if people find it useful over a thousand years, yeah. then it isn't a cult. Anymore. I agree. Yeah. You know? Well, also, I think that people look, I mean, I think I have deep sympathy for people that are looking for community, you know, you know, religious community, which clearly the Branch Davidians were. Um, and the thing is, they want a story that removes them from the sort of terror and, right, cruelness of the regular world, right? 
And that's the real, you know, sort of irony in the situation is what they get then is a story. But it's sort of, it's, but that, that longing makes them form around a story that sort of has a very violent center as well mm-hmm. and all this stuff, you know, yeah. sort of took place. So. Yeah. But it is a story, but I mean, there are stories too that are, um, I mean, I think they're, you know, it's, it's, it's not completely, I mean, there's some questions in, in, in why you would want to sort of take on a story like that and, and, and make it a part of yourself and, you know, live in that way and whatnot, I think, too. Um, you know, my, my sort of initial route back into the church, I mean, even though it's a tremendously unpopular thing to say in public, I do go to church. And the route back into it for me was um, Jesus of Nazareth as character. You know, yeah. I, I really took the New Testament and the, the Gospels, and I felt this is the most awesome piece of character construction in I any know. book I had ever read. read yeah, yeah. You know, like he's reconfigured four different times by four different narrators, yeah. and at the end of it, he has a density and complexity of character that you find in no novel. I you know. know. That was the root in. Like yeah. Dylan said, it was the music that lured him yeah. in. For me, it was, it was the story yeah. and the immensity uh, yeah. from a narrative angle, from a storyteller's well, angle. Well, too, and you never, character. you don't get very much internal. Like Jesus, you never have. Pa- thank God, right? You never have passages where Jesus says, "Well, I was thinking about doing the miracle, but then I was, you know, right. <laughs> but then I wasn't in a good mood." And like, you know, it's all told in this way that's sort, that's sort of off, you know. Um, so do you think that um, God inhabits the universe in the same way that a writer should inhabit their text? Wow. Just a little one I thought I would throw out. Yeah. Um, I think that, that, that creativity is a little imitation of divine creation. You know, yeah, that clearly. The, the right? fact yeah. that we're given yeah. the, the luxury to create here on earth and that that's a great expression of our personalities is, you know, a little metaphor so that we'll have some glimmer of what divine creation is like. Right, right. Do you think if God doesn't have the universe, what, like, does he have the intention, like, like, authorial intention? It's getting so heavy. <laughs> We're actually driving people out of here. <laughs> uh, no. I really, uh, it'd take me an hour. Okay, to okay, okay, okay. We can go on. Yeah. We can do that one later. All right. Okay. Come to the cocktail party. Yeah, I know, exactly, yeah. Um, well, um, I know that you have a regular religious practice, um, like, you know, that you, you go to church, you pray. And, and um, I was wondering if... Uh, just if you think if that's affected your work at all or if you think that you know just sort of what the relationship is for you between um, your practice and your and your writing um, how can it not affect me of course it affects me because at a certain really fundamental level it's to make it's to it's to arrive at an idea about what the universe is right, you know, yeah. and, and how it operates uh-huh. Principally for me, what's valuable in, in the, the church that I go to, which is the Episcopalian church, uh-huh. is, is, well, there are two things. One is ritual and how uh-huh. ritual is practiced there, uh-huh. which is in a really old-fashioned, uh, luminous kind of way. And the other is the idea of scripture's importance to, um, to 
the practice of faith. Right, you know? right. So in the Episcopal Church, interpretation is not only open to a certain degree, you're invited to take the text and arrive at your own interpretation, uh-huh. but it's utterly central to the whole thing. So as uh-huh. far as I'm concerned, it's a reader's faith. You right, know? Right. It's like a faith that someone like me would be naturally attracted to. Are those things, do those things then in turn affect how I do my job? Absolutely. Yeah. You know? Those ideas, the whole idea that I could wake up and say, I hate the church that I was born in, I don't want to go anymore, yeah. is an utterly Episcopalian idea. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. It's already been built into the practice. Right, you know? right. So that kind of um, rebellious, I'm going to take the code of fiction, break it all apart, see what it means, put it back together, that's very much a part of what I've been doing all my life on right. Sundays. You right, know? right, yeah, so, yeah. So I do think it's it's totally central, you know, and even the decade that I was certain I was an atheist and the Jacques Derrida was, you know, my yeah. God or yeah. whatever, you know, <laughs> yeah. that was built in too. That yeah. was, you know, <laughs> yeah. it was all there. Yeah, it's all yeah. part of the same experience in a way. Right, yeah. I wanted to ask you the same question about Lutheranism. Uh-huh. If you feel that the particular flavor of Lutheranism has been useful in your work well you know in, in Lutheranism we have this idea of grace you know which is so hard to explain so hard to both explain and understand but um yeah I think so you know I mean clearly I think that uh the idea of the you know I have I mean in my work there's a lot of people sort of looking around there you know searching there you know waiting for God to come to them in their apartments you know what I mean or you know sort of searching for God in the closet and things like that and I think that 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 is definitely informed by Lutheranism the idea of that grace is not something that you can actually ask for it just sort of comes to you and you know I mean and that's tremendously it can be a relief but if you're anxious it's not that much of a relief you know what I mean I mean it'd be nicer to have ways in which you could you know you know and I mean and, and not that Lutheranism isn't isn't interested in um questioning and studying, but I think it's less so than Episcopal, you know, the Episcopalian church, actually. Um, that you are, sta- you know, you're saved by grace. I mean, you know. And also, I just think that, you know, since my father and so many of my uncles and my grandfather was, you know, were all Lutheran ministers, in some ways, it's their, it's the variations in their faith that have fascinated me, like the way that my father was different than my grandfather, and the way their practices were different, and the things they believed were different, and, um, and uh, in a, you know those things, and also just being a minister's daughter, you know, you know what you see a lot of the sort of like the behind the it's like being like an actor's kid or something. You see behind the scenes a lot. Those things have informed my life a lot too. The working, the politics, and the workings of the church and things like that. Do we get to a point where we get to have them ask? I questions? think so. I don't know what are we at that point. We well actually can we do our can we do our moral absolute question? Let's talk about rock and roll. Okay, I know. Okay, all right. Really? This more I worked so hard on this one though. All right. Okay, all right, all right. Um well if we're gonna have one more, you can choose, actually, since you are the main. No, no, you do not okay. <laughs> okay, okay. Um well I wanted to to ask you if you believed in moral you know, moral in moral absolutes, like on a personal level and as a writer, and how this affects your work. Um and I'm I just wanted to say that I think I mean this is an interesting question for me as a writer because I think on the one hand I really like work like 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 Andre Dubas where the characters have a moral grid and you know, where there are repercussions and where people you know if they do things that are you know like bad they feel badly about them and they and they, and they don't just sort of quickly get over it the next day but they you know it sort of becomes a part of them and 
and um, so I, I, I am interested in, I, I, I think it makes for nice, nice conflict and, t you know, and, t and tension and fiction to have characters that have sort of a moral underpinning and don't think that everything in the world is okay. But then on the same, you know, but then I also feel like compassion is just key when you're a novelist. You have to, you have to, you know, you have to be so you could have compassion for almost anyone, you know, for Timothy McVeigh. You know, you, you have to see the whole, whole range because if you, if you, if you, um, as a writer, are judging your characters, the reader's going to start to see like an agenda and they're going to balk against it. They're not going to, they want to decide for themselves, you know. And it's not that you, you, you clearly have some ideas, but you can't, I, I think you can't be. So it's those two things, it, 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 you know, it's the relationship between those two things that narratively I think is sort of fascinating, but I thought you could maybe. There was this whole that. period when the movie of the ice storm came out. I, I, I'm guessing some of you saw it. There, there's a spot in the movie where this kid gets killed uh, in a sort of grisly, um, sudden way. And when the movie came out, there were a lot of, uh, particularly from France for some reason, there were a lot of reviews that said, this movie is appalling because it's judging the parents and it's making the kid's death be the sacrifice for the parents. Yeah. You know? And uh, I never had that thought at all. Uh -huh. like it's much closer to what, what Betsy was saying before, that nature in that book is... Uh, Retributive, but it's disjunctive. It's yeah, never right. the accident. It's just an accident. Yeah, you know? yeah. And that's the condition of the universe. There are these accidents, um, uh, and there's nothing that you can do about them. Right. You right, know. Yeah, and yeah. it's not because you're a bad person. Right. Just how it is. You know. Yeah. On the other hand, I did feel while I was writing the book that that it was okay for me to say out loud that the parents getting into everybody else's beds and yeah. stuff was going to have a negative effect on the kids because yeah, that was right. my belief right. you know? yeah, and I yeah. would still adhere to that belief yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. so I didn't feel like it was incumbent upon me to be completely morally relativistic uh -huh. to say you know oh well that's just their expression of love and yeah. the kids are going to have to learn to handle it yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. I wasn't willing to go that far yeah. so I think it's a balance you know? right, yeah. but it's also true like Purple America this, this, this other book I wrote the terminally ill woman's husband announces at the beginning of the book that he can't take it anymore and walks out on her. You know, she can't take care of herself. Yeah. She's um, bedridden and so forth. And when I started the book, I thought, this guy's going to be the fall man in the book and I'm going to make him pay. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And it turned out that as soon as I made that decision, I started to think yeah. that he was sort of heroic in a way. And he ended yeah. up coming back yeah. to her at the end of the book, which was yeah. not my plan. Yeah. You know? So the experience of trying to be compassionate to people who are, quote, unsympathetic, unquote, yeah. creates really interesting possibilities in books. I, I think, think that's true, actually. That can be a door, most definitely. Now let's talk about rock and roll. Okay. Um, well, clearly, you know, you're very interested in rock and roll. <laughs> <laughs> you, you have a band. Not anymore. Not you anymore. have a band. Now I have a band. Well, you know. So <laughs> Actually, my band's all here. Um, uh, but you know, you I know you you know I I mentioned a CD to you and you 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 you've had it for eight months and you know every other CD about you know, from that band. You, so you, you clearly like you follow and know tons about music. And I thought that you could talk a little bit about how if what kind of influence you feel like that's had on you and your work and. Well, my contention is that, that almost all contemporary fiction is about observation. That uh -huh. The principal sense that's being made use of in most contemporary fiction is, is um, the visual. And, you know, in these classes we always say, oh, you should try and work in some other senses. Yeah, and everybody yeah. goes, 
damn, I forgot to put in those other senses. I better yeah. make the character smell bad yeah. you know, <laughs> just to get yeah. it in there. Or touch you know. leather. Right, but yeah, really, exactly. we're, <laughs> principally, we're operating with the with the visual, you know. Uh-huh. But my whole method of ingress as a kid has always been about sound and the way things sound, uh-huh. you know. And I think a lot of the stories in demonology, you know, are first about listening to the way people talk yeah. and also to what rhythm can do, you know. Right, yeah. Getting back to that the ideas of in Ecclesiastes, you know, it derives its power from litanical phrasing and so forth. Uh-huh. I'm thinking first about how stuff sounds, you yeah, know. Yeah. And so music's been really influential. Like, you know, I always listen to music when I compose. Uh-huh. Mostly the first drafts, I can't have lyrics because they get in the way. Uh-huh. But certain musical ideas are always creeping into the work just mm-hmm. because of how fundamental it is to the writing process. That's so great. like, when I was finishing Purple America, I listened to Blood on the Tracks for like six months uh, at one point. You know, yeah. just every time I wrote, yeah. I had Blood on the Tracks on, yeah, you know, yeah. because I wanted, it kindled something. Yeah, you know, right. And right. I wanted what it had. You right. Know? Do you ever care more about the sound of the word than the meaning of the word? Like, would you choose a word that sounded better, even if the meaning wasn't as precise? No. I mean, it's a balance between the two things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I would never only, I would never choose, uh, I would never choose words just because the meaning was right if there was a better word that had the same meaning. Yeah, right, you know, right, always, right. Yeah, you know, yeah. Well, all that's things being equal, about, right, yeah. I'm going for the sound. Right, know? yeah. All right, let's let them ask okay. questions. Is that okay? Yes, okay. absolutely. We're going to have a couple of questions, but before we do, I just want to thank the two of you. Oh, sure. Um, and thank Robert Polito and Gary Hustvitz from Salon.com, and also Tim and Sasha Nye, um, because without all of your support, this tonight wouldn't have happened, and of course, thank all of you for coming. So, questions. Um, Does that mean that I'll the camera is turned off now? Oh, oh good. I wanted to say earlier how horrible I think cameras are in literary events. No, it's about the meaning of literature and whether televising it is appropriate in a way, and I resist the idea. No offense. But yeah. Yeah, but I think... You know, if you're thinking about literature and life on the page, this is your enemy right here, just yeah. for the record. Yeah. <laughs> Any questions? Go ahead. Um, yeah, I, heard, I read uh, Austin Harris the other day. In terms of, uh, you mentioned a lot of people writing about suburbia, I was just wondering what you thought about writing about Los It was that was really hard work. I was out there on tour. I never lived there, you know. And usually I pick places that I know really, really well, you know. Um, but I was out there on tour for Purple America for, and I stayed like five days, and I started to get a little bit of the flavor of the whole place. And I have, you know, a lot of friends from New York who moved out there, friends who are there now, and so forth. And I started to feel like if you're going to write about America, at some point you have to deal with the edifice of the film industry, you know, and that the place is inseparable from the film industry a little bit. So I just took a stab at it, you know. When I was out there this year on tour, I never read that story in L.A. because I didn't want them to tell me all the stuff I got wrong, you know. But I did find out that there are two McDonald's on Pico, so that much is right. Anyhow, have you written about places you've never been? Um, No, not that I've never been, I don't think. 
I mean, I, I, you know, as a younger writer, I would try to write about, you know, Finland and things like that. <laughs> I wrote this story yeah, called, um, I gave up, <laughs> called James Dean Garage Band and Ring of Brightest Things was set in Bakersfield and I had never been there at all. I just made up Bakersfield. But you don't call it that. You call it something else, right? You call the town Lost, Lost Hills. Hills. Yeah. I think that's a great story. Thanks. I know you don't like it, but I think it's great. Any other questions? Yeah, I had a question about um, what you both said earlier about postmodernism. It, it seems like you both have a, a negative response to it, if, if it can be broadly characterized that way. And I, I just remember as an undergraduate when I first encountered the idea, it seemed assaulted on writing and on literature and on authorship. Uh-huh. And I just find it curious that it, it is a post-cinematic idea. And just to tease about a theme you also mentioned about uh-huh. The sort of irrelevance or the, or the decreasing relevance of literature. If you could just sort of respond to that, whether you think postmodern is a kind of critical vengeance against writing in a way, or reflects a kind of devaluation of, of writing. Well, except that it, that the whole postulation of postmodernism has been done in print. I mean, interestingly, it does. Like if you take. Roland Barthes' essay, The Death of the Author. That was sort of one of the opening salvos in this idea that postmodernism was going to deconstruct the author and prove that he has no volition and doesn't even exist in some way. And yet, it's a beautiful essay. You know, the writing's beautiful. Everything that guy wrote, like Lover's Discourse by yeah. Barthes, one of my favorite books. I agree, actually. You know? He's a good writer. So, so on the one hand, it is trying to devalue our our privileged assumptions about literature but on the other hand it's doing so in an extremely charming beautiful sort of seductive way you know which is perhaps part of its project but if it's had the result that you are indicating that that it's made literature seem you know inglorious in some way and helped to make cinema and television help them to sort of um Make their hegemony perfect, then that's a disastrous outcome in a way. Yeah. You know? yeah. All the artsy types in my class were doing video installations. Right, I know. I know. It's the same yeah. thing at Brown. I mean, I went to Brown, which is the hotbed of all that semiotic stuff, and <laughs> writing was considered, you know, like beyond uncool. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I said only write about what you know. Right, yeah, I know. Um, I love Stevens. I don't Me have too. any problem with Stevens. Like but I will say that I prefer William Carlos Williams. Okay. You know, so maybe you know, that's mm. a prejudice along the lines you're mapping. You just heard Rick Moody being interviewed by Darcy Stenke, part of the Bomb Live Writers Series that took place at the New School in New York City in the winter of 2001. For streaming video, web-exclusive interviews, and more, check out bombsite.com.